It's not always the big things that change the world. It's the small acts of kindness that happen repeatedly over a lifetime that make the world a better place. So every week we share a story of someone like you who is doing good in the world in their own way. Welcome to Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert. And today on the podcast, I am so excited to have Richard Paul Evans join us. So when Richard Paul Evans wrote his number one global bestseller, The Christmas Box, he never intended on becoming an internationally known author. The story was written as an expression of love for his then two young daughters. And for those of you who have read this book, you'll know exactly why. Three years later, this quiet, simple story of parental love and the true meaning of Christmas made history when it became simultaneously the number one hardcover and paperback book in the nation. Since then, more than 8 million copies, which is absolutely mind-blowing, of the Christmas box have been printed, and seven of Evans' books were produced into television movies. He has since written more than 42 consecutive New York Times bestsellers. Let me repeat that. 42 consecutive New York Times bestsellers, which is an incredible accomplishment and is one of the few authors in history to have hit both the fiction and nonfiction bestseller lists. There are currently more than 30 million copies of his books in print. He's won the American Mother's Book Award, two first place storytelling world awards, the Romantic Times Best Women's Novel of the Year Award, and the German, okay, help me, is it Les Pere, Les Pere's? Les Pere's. No idea. Les Pere's. <laughs> Some really awesome prestigious gold award for romance. <laughs> and is a five-time recipient of the Religion Communicators Council's Wilbur Award and more than a dozen others for his young adult series, Michael Bay, which is awesome. And if you have kids ages, oh, I don't know, like nine, ten-ish to eighteen. It's, it's, it's uh, middle school to 90. Middle school to 90 That's is... Kind of nine to 90, yeah. Yes, nine to 90 is awesome. And also, which is so cool, during the fall of 1998, you founded the Christmas Box International, which is an organization devoted to maintaining emergency shelters and providing services and resources for abused, neglected, or homeless children, teens, and young adults, which is amazing. And to date, more than 130,000 children have been served and have benefited by the Christmas Box House facilities and programs. Richard lives in Salt Lake City with his wife and family, and I am so excited to ha talk to you today. Do you love it when people read your bios as much as I love it when people read my <laughs> bio? <laughs> and you just sit there in silence as we just praise you and go over your accolades. I think it's pretty cool. Thank you. <laughs> I, think we, I think we wrote that. Yep, yep. It's so awesome. I know. I, I always hate it when they're like, do you have a bio? I'm like, please don't read a bio. I hate my bio. But I love reading other people's and talking about everyone's accomplishments. And for those that are listening to the show that would be living under a rock and somehow don't know who you are, I'm sure now they're going to check you out and, and, and check out the books. So, Richard, let's talk a little bit about you being a writer. Was this something that you have always loved to do? Were you always writing in class growing up? And did you come up with fun short stories when you were little? Or was this something that you picked up later on in life? That's a good question. I mean, I was a professional writer when I wrote my first book, but I was writing radio commercials. And writing advertising is a great training for writing books because you have to capture people's attention in a very short time. Yes. And so if I have to catch your attention in less than 10 seconds, uh, that's a good way to practice. So like, so like James, James Patterson, he's a, he's an ad guy. There's a bunch yes. of our ad guys. 
yeah. either ad guys, lawyers, or, or single mothers trying to they'll get by. There's a certain kind of psychographic that you tend to find. Yeah. We all write, and if you notice the ad guys, we write really short chapters because we're used yeah. to it. Because so, that's what we're used to. Keep the attention. Yeah. Yep. And I also, you know, I also, I mean, who doesn't, but I also have ADHD along with my Tourette syndrome. And I just have to write, things have to move really quickly or I get bored real fast. And I have to read my book 70 times. You only have to read it once, but I have to read it over and over. And so that's why I just, my books move quickly because I get bored. And along with that, I, I don't know if a lot of people know that you have ADHD and Tourette syndrome, but because of that, I feel like a lot of people, they love your book so much because there's a lot of people that struggle with ADHD or ADD and long, lengthy novels that take a long time to get into point that can be beautifully written. Sometimes, you know, it's hard to finish and you're like, I'm bored with it. Even if it's a beautiful story and a beautiful idea, you could have said it in about 20 less chapters. So your books are, they're fast moving. They're interesting. They keep your attention the whole time. I remember when I first read The Christmas Box and I was in college when I read it the first time and then reread it since I've had kids. And I took different things from it at different times in my life. And I think that's what makes that book in particular such a huge success is different people at different stages of their life can relate to it in other ways. So when you said you wrote that one in particular, a love story for your daughters, a parental love, what was, did you have any concept of that idea or, or how did that story come to you? Well, it came at an interesting time. I, like your father-in-law, I was in politics. And so I, I, I had first started with Governor Bangador. It started with being very involved in these races. And I started an agency. And we were, we were working with a new candidate named Robert Bennett, who became Senator Bennett. And I was in his office. And I ran for the state legislature as well. And I was only 29 years old. And I won my primary. And I was in the general election. And I lost. And I lost. And the best thing that ever happened. You know, I lost by 100 votes. And it's a very close race. And so I remember my wife was so relieved. She was so happy the next time. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I, I have all this time now. What am I going to do? Because when you're working an election, you're just, as you know, you're just, you're slammed. Non-stop. You're working a hundred hours a week. That's yeah. all you don't have time for anything else. And so no. it, it, it just stops. Yes. It, it's. Wow. Now what? Yes. And, yeah. and I thought, well, I have this time. I think I will write a book. I'll just and write a book. I'll just, just write a book. I always wanted to write one. No, just as the thing to do. And I find that most people, I think about 40% of Americans want to write a book. Just for asking audiences. And that's what I did. I wrote this book and it, I gave it out as Christmas presents and a few some neighbors and I thought it was done and it just spread. And being in marketing, I know when something has, you know, viralness and appeal. And this is before social media. Oh yeah. Yeah. People kept asking for it. And so I, I decided to send it off to publishers and they all rejected the book. So I self-published the book. And that was, you know, that was, uh, this is the most successful self-published book in history. The CBS news calls me the godfather of self-publishing, but I, I was just, I looked at it the same way I looked at a candidate. If I wanted to get my book elected, what would I do? And I handled it the exact same way and it just exploded. And so that's what started the whole career, but it more than a, you know, more than a career, it started a whole life because I look at how it impacted my, you know, my family, my, the Christmas box house is something I'm most proud of. I'm just, I love the Christmas box house. I love what we've done. I have, I see these kids that we helped way back when as adults now, sometimes they come to book signings with their kids 
And then to know that in some small way, it made a difference in the world is exciting. So that's how I did. I never really thought writing books would be something that would be open to me. And here I just finished my 43rd novel. It was about, it's about to come out. And so, wow, this is amazing. And I just had my first feature film shot. And I'm very excited about that. Starring Justin Hartley from This Is Us. I guess he's a heartthrob on This Is Us. Right? Oh, yes. Yes. And director Charles Shire, um, who has produced at least four feature films I've seen. It does a lot of stuff with Steve Martin. And so I'm just, you know, it's kind of a dream come true in that way. It's pretty. Which book is that based on? The Noel Diary. The Noah, and I love that book too. That book's really intense. Yeah, it, it's based on my life. It's probably the most autobiographical of all my books. You know, there's a scene in there. I, I remember when um, the mother packs this little boy's bags and walks him out to the road. He says, go find somewhere else to look. And um, he's standing by the side of the road with a suitcase. And that was me. You know, I'll, I'll never forget sitting there with my little brother. My mom kicked us out of the house and I was nine years old. It's like, well, where do we live? We don't know how this works. So just standing by the side of the road for more than an hour, several hours, and it's dark out. And it's, I just, I'll just never forget my little brother looking up in my face and saying, Rick, where are we going to live? And uh, my mother struggled with, with mental health issues, and it was really hard. And thankfully, I love my mother, and I'm, she's passed away since then. But I'm grateful. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for these experiences. They've given me empathy. And I also am grateful my mother, before she died, she was able to get help. And my mother had a side that was very sweet, very kind. And then she would tur- she could turn. And that's in, so that's in Noel Diary. I, I really, it's a very vulnerable book. And so I remember one of my um, cousins reached out to my brother and said, the rich lying. He just made this up. He, he's lying. He made this up to get attention and money. Like I need either. Right. And he goes, he just said, she's the sweetest woman I've ever met. And he just made this up. And my brother wrote back and, and, and said, she used to beat me until I would pass out. Oh my goodness. She never wrote back. <laughs> like that is like end of the end of it. It's like, yeah, people have, there's, you know, every, every family has dark sides. You know. It's true. But to be able to take that and weave it into such a, a beautiful story, the Noel Diaries, it is, it's heart wrenching. It, it's incredible. I can't wait to see it as a film, but to be able to draw on that life experience and create something like that, that could also help others that are you know, going through trials and similar things. You you have such a gift and talent for doing that and for making the stories just so relatable and really touching you. It's not just happy, feel-good stories, and they are, and they all come together at the end. And But it, they're stories that make you think. They're make, they make you think about life and relationships and your purpose in life and how little decisions affect other people. And I want to go back to what you said about being a little nine-year-old boy and standing there with your brother. Did, did your mom eventually say, okay, come back in the house? Or what ended up happening that day? We, it was dark, and I, I went back to the door, rang the doorbell. And she opened the door and just looked at me. I said, we'll be good. If, if, if we're good, we'll, we, we won't fight anymore. And she was upset because we were quarreling, as little kids do. Yes. And I said, if we're good, can we still live here, please? And she just walked away from the door. And I took it as we came no. back in. How did uh, people right now, I feel like there's a lot of mental health awareness, which I'm so grateful for. It's not as taboo as it used to be to talk about anxiety, depression, ADHD, things like that. My dad's a psychiatrist. And so growing up, we were, he was very open about if you're struggling and if there's something that you need to talk about, please talk to us because the brain is an organ and it functions just like any other part of the body. And if there's things that, mm. if, if you have, you know, it, it, 
dopamine levels and serotonin. And if your neurons aren't firing correctly, there's all sorts of things that can affect your mental and emotional health. And it's not your fault. You're not just being sad. There's nothing wrong with you. I can help fix it. Just like a surgeon fixes a broken arm or an eye doctor or not an ophthalmologist fixes your eyes. I can help fix your brain. And, and it was so nice to know that I had a dad and I've used him. I had postpartum with my fourth really bad. I was actually hospitalized a week after, a couple of weeks after I gave birth. I had kind of a mental breakdown. I didn't know. I thought I was having a stroke and um, lost my speech and my arms went numb and my eyes went crossed oh. and I didn't know what was happening. And it was basically a Wow. An overwhelm. I had four boys under six and my, my body just said, this is too overwhelming. And, and my husband was young men's president and was busy and getting a master's and it was just too much. And so my body shut down, but I was so grateful that it wasn't, that's weird. Something's wrong with you that it was, okay, now we can help you. Let me help you. So there's been this, I feel like this awareness more recently that people are more open about talking about mental health, but also about how childhood trauma can affect you and can carry on. Have you, from this experience, I'm, I, as a nine-year-old boy, you said you talked about it in the Noel Diaries. Has writing been a way to heal from some of this childhood trauma that you've carried? Or do you feel like you're, you're still uncovering layers of who you are and, and who you were? And how does that affect your work and how you write? I think we're always trying to figure ourselves out. Yeah. It's, especially when you complicate it with marriage. Yeah. Yes. And someone else's past and issues yeah. and problems. And yeah. So, but there, I mean, and that's really what, and, and we're, you know, we're talking about a book that came out a long time ago, but the thing about Noel, what Noel Diary is about is we always had this, you know, families have stories. And yeah. the story was my mother, like you were, was hospitalized after I was born. She had extreme postpartum depression. And then she had it. And then she gave birth. I mean, it was just like my mom had nine children. Oh my goodness. And the baby died. And my mother went into severe depression. It was very dark. I mean, it was very hard. And it just suddenly occurred to me, I was 40 years old at the time. And I said, Dad, who took care of me? Yeah. During that time. I go, wait a second. I was a baby. This is the most formative time of my life. Who took care of me? And he goes, well, we always loved you. And I said, that's a horrible answer, Dad. It, yes, that answer is nothing. But, but, but also, we always loved you. I said, what did you do? And he said, well, you know, I had nothing to do with the kids. I said, yeah, I'm painfully aware of that. You know, had no really zero interaction. We, we played ball. He threw a ball with me once for three minutes. It was on my birthday when I was 12. I mean, that was one time in my life. It's, there was no interaction. Unless you worked with him because he was a uh, dude building structure. Then. And I go, dad, yeah, I know that. So who had me? Someone had to physically have me. Who raised me? And he said, Pam. I go, Pam? Who's Pam? And I said, well, she was an unwed mother that we would take in these unwed mothers. She was a social worker too. And we would take in unwed mothers. And so that's what started the Noel Diary. It's, I was raised by someone at this crucial time in my life. It's, I don't know who she is. And I have flashes of her. Some of them aren't that good. I mean, it's pretty clear I was sexually abused as a, during this time. And it's okay. So someone I don't know raised me during this crucial time. And then my next brother came and my time was kind of gone. So very, it was a very lonely child. You know, it was just like, so 
And that's where Noel Dyer came from. It's like someone looking for his past. He wants to find who this Pam was. The bizarre thing about it is my Pam showed up at my first book signing. No way. She showed up and it, I have to admit it, that, you know, there's hundreds of people there and she came in and I go, I can't deal with this. It kind of freaked me out. Oh yeah. I go, I'm sorry. No. I can't. Yeah. And years later, I mean, this is all came from, I draw from true stories. A woman showed up at our house. She goes, I mean, she didn't even see this video. And so I, I, I apologize to her. I didn't mean to be off putting. I just didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. And. A woman showed up at her house and she goes, did you have this woman stay to my dad before he died? And he said, did you have this woman stay at your house during this time? And so my mother goes, yeah, she goes, that was my mother. And she denied me. I went to her and she goes, she said, no, I was never pregnant. You're, I don't know who you are. And she was just trying to find her biological mother, tracked her down. And my dad said, you have to understand in, within the religion. At that time, it was such a shameful thing that her husband may not even know that she was pregnant, that she had a baby. Oh my goodness. It was completely hidden. So you showing up on her doorstep was not something that she was prepared for or would, would even acknowledge it. It's like, it was such a great sin that she doesn't want you to exist. And that was, you know, so this woman, I thought, what an interesting story to have a man going back, trying to find this Pam and having the daughter show up, trying to find the same woman who, yeah, who is she, you know? So that was, that was where the book came from. And every book comes from it. My new book, Christmas Promise, deals with some really powerful stories about being judgmental. You know, it's, I'll show you a picture. This has been, I don't have a book and that's, what's really weird. This has been a really weird year. And for the first time in my career, there's, the book was bumped. It was supposed to come out November 2nd and it's coming out the week of Thanksgiving because they can't physically get the book printed and delivered. They've been working out for three months, but the supply chain demand is broken down. Oh, isn't that just the craziest, most frustrating thing? Yeah. But perfect timing still, the week of Thanksgiving, it's a perfect time to come out right before Christmas. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's good. And it's, I'm fortunate. That's my publisher said, we canceled. My agent said, we canceled seven of my author's books. Unbelievable. And because I have such a wonderful following, my readers are incredibly loyal. Yes. And, you know, if you're watching this right now and you read my books, you want to read Christmas Promise. One thing they tell me is that the books can't be reprinted before Christmas. They can't physically, they will reprint it if it sells out, but they can't get it before Christmas. Unfortunately, they, they print a lot of copies. But for, but because of that, I'm getting a lot of pre-orders. So my pre-orders are the highest they've been in 10 years. I mean, oh, that's amazing. Massive numbers of, yeah, books are being sold. So I just want, wanted to get in people's hands and see if they like it, right? Yes. Well, I'd love to talk about the Christmas promise. And and you've talked a little bit about how you've drawn from lots of life experience in, in writing your books and really painful, difficult life experience. And the Christmas promise is also, you know, is is it based on things that you've been through in your life or family members that that they've been through? What was the inspiration behind the book? Well, this one, I, this one is kind of based on the greatest book of all time, the Bible. It's based on the story of the prodigal son. And I, I realized growing up that I misunderstood the story of the prodigal son. I always thought it was about the son. It's not about the son at all. That's not what the story's about. The son is only a setup for their true story. The prodigals, if you, and you know that because who Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, people who considered themselves way above the prodigal son. He was talking about the older brother. Yes. That's what the prodigal son is about. Yes. And he was talking about being judgmental. The Pharisees is, look, when he came back, there wasn't a church court. 
there wasn't let's examine you. It was like your back and he embraced his son and brought him in full love. And the older brother didn't like that. Yeah. Well, he popped him up at Pharisees and modern day Pharisees. It, it fits today. So no, you did wrong. You need to pay for that. Yeah. You need to be punished. And uh, so I wanted to write about, in this case, two daughters. They're identical twins. And one is the older brother. One is like studious, does everything right, obeys all the rules. And so I'm the good one. And yes. I'm the good one. Okay. And my, my sister, the identical twin, my sister, she's the evil twin, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm getting kind of chills even thinking about it because it's a really beautiful, I think it's a beautiful message because she so judges her sister and then her sister does something awful and she completely cuts off communication with her and her dad, their dad's just trying to get them back together. And then her sister dies. She oh. never, he never pulls it together. And the story is about her finding the truth about herself and about her sister. And I think it's really powerful. It's one of those books that there's one line in there that literally took my breath away. And my agent, when she read, she goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I can't believe that was in there. I go, I know when it came to me, it took my breath away. And, and you'll know it when you hit that line. My wife did the same thing. She goes, oh my gosh, that just, I started crying immediately when I heard that oh. it's Really, there's some really interesting twists in the book. And that's what I want to do. I want people to look at it and say, um, I mean, we've all been the older brother. Yes. In that judgmental person. Then. Yes. I, I think I have a, I have a nephew who's, who is a drug addict, was really struggling. And I realized that I had been the older brother for years. And I, years later, we were in church together. And I saw came on. I put my arm around him. He just wept. And afterwards, he goes, I've always looked up to you, but I never thought you liked me. Oh. And I said, forgive me. I'm the broken one. I said, I didn't understand. And, um, it's actually, it's beautiful what God can do and how the relationship was healed. And then it wasn't that long after that my son called me and goes, Hey, he's in the driveway. He's in, excuse the language. He goes, he's zapped up. He's up. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's that he's wet in his pants. He's passed out in the driveway. Yeah. And where I came and got him, I carried him inside and put him in a shower, gave him some of my clothes. And for the first time I felt Christ-like instead of in his for more than 15 years, I had judged him. I put him down and I talked about him and, you know, so I'm learning too. And so it comes with this ability to say, you know, I'm really broken and I need God even more than at well, as much as my nephew does. Uh, and so it was a changing, it was a wonderful experience. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the forgiveness I've done for being a, really being a Pharisee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, that is such a beautiful story. And, and a beautiful theme. And I completely agree with you. It, I tell my boys, they're ages six to 12 right now, when people are unkind to them and mean to them, that has very little probably to do with what they've done, but what, what that person is dealing with personally. It, it, it's what they're going through because happy people don't want to put others down. If you're at peace with yourself in your life, you don't want to bring others down. You want to build them up. But if there's something going on in your life and you're struggling, you'll often project that on other people and they're happy. And I've told them, pray for those. It's like the scripture, pray for your enemies. And I always hated that scripture. Like, why would I pray for someone that is hurting me and, and being so unkind? I have no desire to want to bless their lives or pray for them. And it really, like you said, it's not about, it's not about that. It, it's about being able to give 
your anger and resentment, how and, and it may be completely justified, giving it to the Lord and saying, okay, I'm going to forgive them by giving it to you and, and knowing that he will completely be just and merciful as he needs to be. And I've kind of shifted my mindset on that of not saying it's okay. It's just about getting the anger and hurt out of my heart so I can move on. And so I don't have to carry that around with me. And that's hard to do. And I love that you talk about the prodigal son and the older brother. And I've thought about that so many times too. Like that is not fair that he did everything right. And it's not fair. But when you look at it from this amazing new perspective, like you said of about not judging someone that's trying to come back, that's trying to turn their life around, it puts a whole different spin on that story and a whole different focus on that. So there are opals in this story, the Christmas promise. Opals have a really significant meaning to me, but I would love to hear about what the significance is of this gem in your book. Well, it's my bestow, being a Libra, right? Um, in, in this book there, the father gives the two daughters opals for their graduation, these beautiful black opals. And he tells them, this represents you because we're outside to look alike. The thing about opals is that they have this fire within them and there's kind of, a, some have kind of a greenish blue hue and some have like fire, like orange and red. And so that's what he says. He goes, both of you have a very different fire. The father understands. He loves his daughters unconditionally. He loves them equally. Yes. And he's trying to teach the older one as well. He <laughs> you knows, okay, don't judge your sister too hard. Right. So, and that graduation night was a really tough night in, in the book because the one daughter is salutatorian, so she speaks at, the, at school. And because they're identical twins and they're Asian, no one can tell them apart. Yeah. No, they're, they're completely identical, perfectly identical. So here, the, and the, the other daughter only graduated because her sister took a final exam for her. The teacher did no different. Well, she walked into the room she, and her sister begged her, if I will not get out of high school. Yeah. If you don't, if I fail this class. And so her sister goes in as her and just aces. She had to pretend. She had to get some wrong on purpose, and because no one would believe. She had that's to make it more believable. No one yeah. could tell the difference. You know, the teacher yeah. didn't hold her. And so, so here the one barely gets by. The other, she's up there getting all the praise and uh, one of the top students and, and has scholarships. And it was thanking her or, or congratulating her little sister. Congratulations! It's, it's not me. It's my sister. Yeah. I'm, and so she just feels proud and says, I'm the loser. I'm the disappointment. And that's how you start to understand that she has always felt of herself. And there's a really powerful line in there when someone asks, did you ever once tell her you were proud of her? Oh. I go, but she goes, does he ever tell you she was proud of you? And she goes, all the time. She always said, I said, did you? and he goes, did you ever tell her she was proud of you? Oh. She realized never once, never. And she starts to, she starts to see the truth of, Wow, here I thought I was a good one because I was obeying yes. rules. Right. But there are, deep, there are deeper rules. So there are rules of compassion and forgiveness and acceptance and yes. kindness. And uh, these are deeper rules. Instead of just so, you know, just because you can check off the boxes doesn't mean you're a good person. Right. You go to church every Sunday. I don't miss my meaning. So what? I remember my dad told me a story. He, he said, dad walks in, finds his son reading the scripture. He goes, look at me, dad. I'm up late reading the Bible while my lazy brother's in bed. And he said, better you are in bed than finding fault with your brother. 
Oh, interesting. I know. Exactly. It's about your heart. It's about your heart. And what is the why behind what you're doing? Is it for looks? Is it just to get that praise? Or is it because you really want to be doing it? What is your heart like? I don't know if you've ever looked up healing properties or the properties of opals or what they signify. Have you done that ever? I've, I started out talking about the history because people thought there were, there were demon spirits in them. They thought there's been so many different things because they look mystical. Yes, they do. They, they do. It's so what, you know, in fact, I started, some believe they fell from lightning. They're making lightning fell from the sky during storms. And, but I, the Healy, that's what I'm sure I read it, but what do you know? Yes. No, I just, I, I was just looking it up when you were talking and according to, to this, I'm, and I don't know, it's fun to read about, you know, stone properties and things like that. But according to this, it just said it stimulates originality and creativity. They help to release anger, claim self-worth, aid in accessing and expressing one's true self and strengthen memory. Kind of interesting, huh? Do any of those go along with? No, I need to wear one. I, <laughs> I, I wear one. So for those of you that are listening and can't see, my great grandma Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Great grandma gave me this beautiful, this was her mother's wedding ring. It's a, it's an egg shaped opal with little black and white pearls all around it. And it was her mother's wedding ring. And we used to go and visit my grandma every Arizona, my great grandma for spring break. And I, I would always be so mad that all my friends would be doing fun things in high school. And I would be with my great grandma in her trailer house in Arizona. And my mom's, we don't know how much longer we have with her. This is my dad's grandma. And now looking back, I'm so grateful. They forced me to go on these vacations and get to know her a little bit better. But one day she grabbed my hand in the car and she said, you look like you're about my same size. I have little hands too. And I have something special for you. And she gave me this amazing ring that was her mother's and it's an opal. And this is one that's, it's blue purple and then at the very bottom has that orange fire that you talk about and my grandma was not a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and she gave me also a gold locket with a picture of her mother with a lock of her hair same color as mine and years later after my great grandma passed away i was wearing this ring one day and just had this thought and i thought i need to go to the temple and do my grandma's work and Everything was against me that day. I got in a car accident. We were late to the session. I almost didn't make it in time. I realized my temple recommend had expired. My bishop that I called happened to have brought his recommend book home and happened to have it with him, was able to give me a last minute interview, stake president too. And anyway, I was sitting in the temple and there was a little temple worker that came up to me after and I was explaining the story and I said, oh, I just felt like I needed to do it. I, I was looking at my grandma's ring and I just felt like she said, now, do it now. And she said, I have found that they, on the day that, that you come to the temple, especially if it's for an ancestor, it's the exact day that they're ready. And she said, I want you to do it. And that's why she let you know. And I felt so close to her in that moment. And I've, I've often wondered why she gave me this ring. She had lots of other grandkids and great grandkids and daughters. And she gave it to me. And I thought maybe she knew that I would remember her and maybe she knew that I wouldn't forget her and I would tell her story. So what do you think, Richard, what do you want people to remember about you through your books 
or through the Christmas Box Foundation? Do you leave little pieces of yourself and your soul behind when you're writing? What do you want people to remember about you? Oh, that's something I, to, I wrote yesterday. Someone I wrote on my Facebook page that I would like to be remembered as someone who helped someone, that, that mattered to someone else. You know, and it's really the response from my readers was really sweet. You know, I have a quote. If you go to my Facebook page, my publisher was in New York. You're walking on Park Avenue and there's a Methodist church there. And there's a, they had a board out front and they had one of my quotes. I said, that which we, that which we want most in life is the greatest indication of who we really are. I love that quote. Yeah. And yeah, I've had thousands of, so I posted that. They sent me a picture of it. So, hey, they love you here in New York. And. And so I posted it and then I had thousands of responses on it. And, you know, so what do you want? What, you know, what is it you really want? And yes, uh, besides hanging out with my grandchildren, I thought, well, that's probably a good indication. I'm a grandpa. You know, that's my greatest joke is them. They're hilarious. Outside of that, I said, I hope my life mattered. And I think we all want that. I think our lives made a difference. And here and there, I, you know, I have those experiences. I mean, it was really sweet. I have. A lot of people posted, like, you made a difference in my life, but especially with the Christmas box house. Yeah. Um, before we, when I was still signing books before COVID, I was at the signing this, you know, really, she kind of looked like you. They really, you know, just a really uh, vibrant, beautiful and woman came up. She had two little boys bouncing around her. And, yeah, it could have been you, right? And, and came up and, and she goes, could we have a picture, all of us? I said, I said, sure. And as I'm, as we're taking pictures, someone's holding her camp phone up and she leaned over and said, I'm a Christmas box house kid. I lived in your shelter and, and I thought how beautiful that she had made a transition that we'd broken the cycle. Yes. You know, what a beautiful thing. And, uh, you never, I mean, it's out. I never would have guessed it. And our director now at the Christmas box house, Celeste Edmonds, she was my assistant years ago when I started the Christmas box house. It's really exciting that she started a year ago. She came back and she left Sundance to come run it. And, but she was, she was abused and neglected. She was trafficked as a child. I mean, she, her life, I based one of my books on her, Finding Noel. And it's cool to see that she took this incredibly difficult experience and used it for good. Now she's helping children. She's doing a great job. Christmas Box House. If, if you're not familiar with the Christmas Box House, it's, I think it's something you want to be involved with. It's, it's a beautiful organization. We've helped more than 125,000 children. That's enough to fill Madison Square Garden six times. And we're, it's not with those side things. Kids would be dead. Yeah. Yeah. For, for what we do. And it's really a beautiful organization. And 88% of the money goes directly to helping children. So try to run an organization that big on 12% is not easy. Yeah. All of our staff have taken pay cuts. You, most of them have from where they were before. And it's just a beautiful organization. So that's one of the things you talk about, you know, leaving something behind. And yeah, you know, here and there, I think something, something I didn't matter. Well, and from a book, and how amazing is that? And you will and have and are leaving a beautiful legacy, Richard, and through a book. And you talked at the very beginning of the podcast about how you ran, you were in politics and you were running and you lost. However, that life experience led you to promoting this book. You used all of that experience of running a campaign and to selling your book and promoting your book and then look what it's done and i just think heavenly father can use us in ways we can't even imagine that why would i and maybe you and probably felt inspired to run and you thought well i felt like this was something 
I should have done. Like this was a good thing. And I've had that in my life where I felt inspired and prompted to do something and then it didn't work out. Like, why did I feel like I should do that? And oftentimes I think Heavenly Father uses, it's not the outcome, it's the experience. And then he uses those experiences to help us in other ways. He's okay, well, I have another plan for you and, and I have something bigger and something better. And you took all that experience and created this little book that has ch- literally changed the lives of, of, of thousands of youth and, and more touching and amazing than just this incredible story that millions of people have read. Like you said, you've actually saved their lives. And I just, I can't think of anything more fulfilling or more beautiful to know that you made a difference in in one person's life and saved them, let alone all these children and how incredible that you've done that and get to leave that. And that this is someone that has, that you know, heartache and you know, desperation and abuse, you, you know them and you see them and it's not just someone giving money. It's, I know this personally. And I think that makes all the difference is you can connect them in a way and you put your heart into it in a way that no one else could that hasn't experienced what you've been through. So my last question for you today, Richard, is about the Christmas promise and about Christmas and heartache. There are a lot of people coming into this Christmas season that are dealing with heartache, that have lost maybe loved ones to COVID this year and recently that are dealing with maybe mental health challenges or lost jobs. Tell me why you have so often woven heartache in with your Christmas stories and what hope the Christmas promise can offer those that read it. Well, this is, my books, I think, should be about hope. You know, I had a a beautiful uh, message from a a woman yesterday, and she was an African-American woman in the East and just wrote, you give me hope. You give hope to the hopeless. I thought, that's what I would hope, that we transcend race, color, gender, and pull together with hope, especially in a time like we are now. That's a little bit scary. We're walking in shadowlands right now. You know, there's forces at work that we may not, we don't even understand completely. And to walk with hope. And so all my books have that, including my Michael Vay books. And I think that's why um, they've been just, you know, said, they've done so well. They've been international bestsellers. People are surprised I wrote this young adult series. And so, well, they're all about hope. Every yes. that I write is about hope. And it started with the first book, The Christmas Box, which is, you know, you talked about writing about tragedy. Well, it's about tragedy. It's about the loss of a child and using that message not to repeat that mistake. I think, you know, I think when you get to the end of Christmas problems, I think one of the reasons the pre-orders have been so high is that people are excited about reading something right now that will lift their spirits. Yes. And my books aren't, they aren't saccharine. I mean, there are some people who will call anything saccharine if it's not so dark and abysmal, but my books deal with hard subjects. Yes. It really deals with some hard things. I had a, a movie producer call me last week about this book. He goes, I actually love this. I want to produce it. And he goes, I think it's controversial. You know, controversial. I go, how is this controversial? Goes, well, you're just dealing with some really kind of deep you know, subjects and darkness and this. And it's like, no, I'm just dealing with life. Just life. Life. It's not. Yes. Yeah. So it's, yeah, my books, they're not fake. I mean, every family has darkness and hardships and, but I do believe that love can overcome and I've seen it. I'm sure Carrie and I have dealt with some 
incredibly difficult things with some of our kids, some really dark moments. And also in those moments, we have found some of the most beautiful experiences of our, our lives. And, you know, my kids have been my greatest teachers because I really believe that's why, that's why we have children so we can understand how God feels. Yes. And, and sometimes you learn how to love when there's no love coming back. Yes. You know, that's how you, and that's the only way you can learn to love. Yeah. Loving someone who loves you is easy, right? It's, it's easy. Yeah. But with loving someone who hates you or is angry at you, that's where we truly become who we can become. Anyway, my books are about hope. I think Christmas Promise, it was a hard book to write. And when I first wrote it, I thought maybe I'm going to cancel it. I don't, really? I don't know if it's good enough. Oh, wow. Yeah, I kind of lost my mind earlier as, this year. I was writing five books at the same time, and finally my publisher kind of read me the, the right acts. What are you doing? Yes. Yeah, and it's like, this book is due at this time. I, I, I don't even know if that's possible. And so this book became worthy, not in its first rendition. I turned it in. I thought, this is not good enough. And so when I got the first pass back, I made massive changes, thousands of changes. And it turned in, still wasn't good enough. And then they actually typeset it. It's like, well, we're going with it. No matter what, it's like, I don't want to go with the book that's not my best. And usually I get one or two passes. And what's this typeset? They don't want you to do much to it. And I broke every rule. I, I, every pass, I made thousands of changes. I go one another. I want to see it again. I want to see it again. And finally, the fifth pass came in. And at that point, it's done. I fixed it. it it's done. I can't. I, I wouldn't change anything. It's exactly the way it needs to be. It's, it killed me, but it's here it is. So I'm, I was surprised when I got the book out and I thought I'm so close to it. I don't know if it's any good. It's the best I can do. That's all I can do. And then I started getting national reviews. And the first one came out, there's Kirkus. They hate me. They painted my books since the beginning and they loved it. And I mean, why well, I don't feel about that. And then Publishers Weekly wrote this really great review and then locally, so it's like, I'm getting all these great national reviews. And so well, I guess it's okay. That's where it is. And so we'll see how we, that and then I got a call from a TV, uh, movie producer and it's like, well, I, I can't pick them. I mean, just, I just, I put as much effort in every one of them. And sometimes they connect, sometimes the magic happens and sometimes yeah. it didn't happen as much. I hope you like it. When oh, I can't wait to read it. And I think that is the most beautiful analogy for life is you do the best you can, you give it your all, and then you say, here it is, here I am. I, I did everything I could, and now this is what I have to offer. And I and what a perfect year to do that too, is it's, this is this was good enough, and this was my all, and I did it. And to put it out there, then to be criticized and read and judged and picked apart, obviously you have a really good sense of what people think about it now, and I can't wait to read the book myself and to watch this become equally as successful as your other books, which I have no doubt it will, just because it's you and because it, it is, you have just such a beautiful way of being real and being genuine in, in your book writing, in this podcast today. I'm so grateful for you, Richard, and your books have touched my life too. And for those that are interested in any of your books, but especially the Christmas Promise. What is the best way they can get a hold of it? In bookstores, online, pre-ordering. What should people be doing before? Our line makes it easy, and also, you know, you'll, you'll find them all. They're all there. So, uh, Christmas Promise. What I would say, if you're watching this and you want to read Christmas Promise, I would go right now and pre-order the book. Okay. That way, that way you'll know you'll get it. Perfect. Uh, 
And if you're like, if you're one of these guys, it's like me and you wait till the week for Christmas to shop, you might not be able to get the book. You might be in the doghouse. So because I, of the printing. So get it now. Printing because yeah, if, if it sells out and again, the pre-orders are the highest they've been in 10 years and, yep. and, and the national reviews is going to bring in new readers. Yeah. So anyway, if you, if you like my books in the past, I would order it. Go get it. Amazon on your website. Is there links on your website too? There actually are. You can go there, but they just lead you to Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble. So I think they still have some signed copies left. Perfect. Oh, what a great Christmas present. And, and to read it before Christmas, we have a tradition in our house every year. We read, I read a new novel every year and then I get my boys a new Christmas book, a children's Christmas book. So if you're wanting to do it before Christmas and you can give it, you know, there's no rule that says you have to wait till Christmas Day to give a present. So give it out early and let people enjoy it all season long and become yeah. a new family favorite tradition. I think it's a good way to get in the spirit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Richard, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today, for sharing your heart and for all the good you are doing. Oh, thank you. It's been fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. If you'd like to hear more from Carmen and get brand new full-length talks that you can't get anywhere else from some of your favorite speakers like John By the Way, Meg Johnson, and Hank Smith, you can exclusively inside our Turtle House. And when you join today, you can get two months free when you sign up for an annual plan. Just go to OurTurtleHouse.com to get started. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here for another episode next week.